Welcome to the Order Up Show, the operations management podcast presented by Ops Analytica. The reality is, is that when a customer has a bad experience with our one of our locations or with our brand, very rarely is it a catastrophic fail on the company's part. It's not like they got punched in the face or their car caught on fire or they got foodborne illness. On the contrary, most of those mediocre experiences that they're having are just the team at the location did not deliver the experience or the product to the level of expectation, right? That's it. And what's even more frustrating is that so many of those fails um, that are creating those mediocre experiences have already been identified by the company. We already know that that's an issue. We've trained on it. We told you to look out for it. But the reality is, is that we are asking so much more from our employees today than at any other time in the past. We expect them to have such a grasp on all of these details, but we are not giving them the tools to be successful, right? And that's what we do at Ops Analytica. We are the platform that you give to your hourly employees so they know uh, what they have to do, when they have to do it, and so they don't miss anything. And then on the corporate side, you now have visibility into what's happening and you can hold them accountable to doing it. And you can get rid of those mediocre experiences and control what you can control. And Ops Analytica is a major key to that success. Check us out at opsanalytica.com. Hola, Order Up Show. I changed it. Look at me. <laughs> Order Up Show, it's Tommy. I am here again uh, with a new episode. Please welcome to the show, Susan Berry. Susan, welcome. How are you? I am wonderful, Tommy. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, well, you're very welcome. And Susan, just so you know, we do the same format on every episode. We ask the same five questions to every guest, and we are we don't mess around here. We're going to question number one right now. <laughs> There's no more chit-chat. Stop talking. No laughing. Understood. <laughs> uh Explain what you do today, then take us through your career progression from your first job until now. But before you answer, really quickly, Susan's got ADD, I've got ADD, so who knows if this show's going to stay on the rails. Go, Susan. I've been in our episode. People will be like, when will it end? When will it end? (laughs) Six hours later. (laughs) I have two jobs today in this moment. The first is that I am president and queen bee of Hive Marketing. Hive Marketing is a company I founded 13 years ago. And we do business to business marketing and commercial strategy in hospitality. So what that means is if a hospitality company wants to sell to other hospitality companies, we help them do that. My second job is as host and elevator operator of Top Floor, which is a podcast about, guess what, the hospitality industry, (laughs) although it could be about elevator maintenance, it's hard to say. So those are the two things I do now, both of which I love and adore. And I will say that my very first job, you really want me to say my first job. Absolutely. Was sort of in hospitality. I worked at the concession stand at a movie theater. So I started hospitality. I think so too. I mean, I wasn't very nice, so I don't know if I learned a lot. But um, yeah, I made popcorn and sold, you know, forty dollar candy bars and ten gallon cokes to people. Um, One thing that was interesting about so I worked at a couple different movie theaters the second one for the longest, and it was called the Regency Six in Panama City, Florida. Um, My friend and I were two of the more petite concessionists at the Regency Six. And so they had to build these wooden boxes for us to stand on so that we could reach the cook machines. (laughs) So I spent a lot of time standing on a wooden box, reaching up to, you know, fill up giant Cokes and Sprites and uh, Orange Crush cups. So I did that through high school. When I graduated from high school, I got my first restaurant jobs as, of course, a hostess at some seafood restaurants in Panama City, again, Florida, and then continued in restaurants all through college. When I graduated from college, I was waiting tables at a restaurant and the 
general manager asked if I would be interested in helping to run the catering division of this restaurant. So it was a small restaurant group. I went to FSU in Tallahassee, Florida, and um, I think there were like seven restaurants or something like that and a catering company. And so I ran an off-premise catering company for three years. Um, it was bloody insane. I used to do things like sleep in my car in between events during the busy season. I had a full two inch layer of baked beans in my trunk because they had splashed <laughs> out of a pan and it was real, you know, high level uh, catering work there, but it was really fun. It was so incredibly hard. Um, but I learned a tremendous amount about food and events and sales and all that kind of stuff. So um, around that time, I met my now husband, who was, of course, not my husband when we first met. And he had been on a trip to Denver, Colorado for spring break. So um, we were like, OK, we met, we fell in love, we moved in together. I mean, we were baby children, right? And um, we're like, OK. Here's what we're going to do. But if by this date we don't have jobs in any other place, we're going to move to Denver. Because that <laughs> had been his plan before he met me. I mean, had I ever been to Denver, you ask? No, absolutely <laughs> not. We did not look for jobs. We did not find jobs. And so, circa, I mean, we're very busy, Tommy, very busy. <laughs> um, so, like around early October of 1999, we packed up a big U haul and towed my lemon Kia Sophia that I had bought for like a dollar down or some nonsense. And moved from Tallahassee, Florida to Denver, Colorado, where I very quickly got a job as a cater waiter while I looked for my, quote, real job. I was looking for a, quote, real job um, to leverage my experience as an off-premise caterer while I figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up. So my first job, uh, this was my first hotel job, was as a director of catering and almost... 25 years later, I'm still in the hotel business, still in hospitality. I did, I was a director of sales and marketing at five different hotels for Starwood, which used to be a big company before um, it was bought, acquired by Marriott. So spent five years in Denver, five years in the Washington DC area, and then have been in Atlanta, Georgia ever since. Okay, so first question. Is Panama City where that amazing naval air museum is at? Uh, yes, question mark? I think so. I think we actually passed it, it the last time we were there. And there are all these like crazy planes and stuff. Is that what you mean? Yeah. There's a big the naval, Navy base there. Yeah, the Naval Aviation Museum. Yes, yep. it is there. National, yes, that's a really cool place. Uh, second question. <laughs> That that's so you guys met there and then you moved to Denver. It's ironic that you lived in DC and Denver, and I've lived in DC and Denver. I know it's a pretty common tour of duty, I think, and I'm just surprised you've never lived in Atlanta before. I know. I yeah, I'm I'm done with the East Coast. Uh, it's <laughs> too humid for me at this point. Um, I can only be in dry weather, even though my feet crack, which nobody really wanted to hear, but like I have East coast feet and like, I can't wear sandals. It's very sad for me. <laughs> Listen, uh, for the first six months that I lived in Colorado, I had a bloody nose for six months. It is oh, yeah. so dry. There. But I, you yeah, get no, used to it. No. You can get used to anything. Yeah. My feet haven't gotten used to it. They just rebelled. <laughs> um, but everybody else is fine in my family. So whatever. Um, okay, cool. So I want to learn more about. The, the B2B aspect of marketing, because we, you know, blast us out to a huge hospitality crowd. So can you give me some examples of this hospitality B2B marketing um, from client testimonials or whatever you want to do, but I, I want to understand more about that. So I understand marketing and I understand B2B. I just don't understand how they work together. Yes. <laughs> and I understand your lack of understanding and I will do my best to explain it. Um, I'm going to probably use one of my clients as an example. So I work with a third party hotel management company. So they're not the brand. They're not like Marriott Hilton IHG. 
and they don't own the real estate. They're not a private equity firm or a REIT or an individual owner. They are the third party in the middle that operates the hotel on behalf of both of those other stakeholders. And so our goal with their marketing and their commercial strategy is to demonstrate how they think and how they outperform their competitors in the industry over a long period of time. So we're not doing things like, hey, we're running 50% off our management contract or you know stuff that you're used to seeing for sure. um, consumer marketing or even like SaaS marketing where you're trying to drive demos or you're trying to drive you know website visits and all that kind of stuff. What we're doing is we know that the, pe the people who are the customers in this case are not sitting there Googling, who should I hire for this enormous financial uh, thing that I'm trying to do? The way that they find the people they work with is by asking their peers, um, hearing people speak at conferences, reading information in, in industry publications, and hopefully and presumably reading content that we create and put out for this management company. That probably put you to sleep. So if you wouldn't mind waking up and letting me know if that explains a little bit, I'd appreciate it. No, and I think actually, no, I've interviewed several guys that work for either own uh, management companies or work at management companies. So for a lot of people out there in the restaurant space that don't maybe know as much about hotels is that like Mary, like so, the Marriott that you drive into and go stay at is not owned by Marriott. It's just like the subway is not owned by subway. It's owned by a family in your town. But what the hotel is, because obviously they cost millions of dollars to build, you get these investment groups, the real estate groups basically that build these hotels and then, but they don't want to run them. They just going to get the money together to actually put the building up. So they hire a management company who comes in and just manages the property based off the standards of whatever flag they fly. So if it's a Marriott Fairfield Inn, then they have to man, they have they build the building to be a Marriott Fairfield. And then the management company who gets a percentage of sales, I suppose, yes. um, if they're profitable, right? They come in and actually supply the GM and all the department heads and hire everybody. And you know they kind of run the business and then they get a take of the sales. And that so process and all that stuff. Here's something interesting that I think would blow anyone's mind that isn't in this business. Not only do the real estate folks, the, the owners and investors not want to necessarily operate their hotels, but they're not allowed to unless they have significant hotel experience. So oh. if... I mean, I have significant hotel experience, so maybe I could get a franchise agreement from a big brand. I don't know. But my husband could not walk in to any of the brands and say, hey, I just built you this $70 million hotel. I'd like to run it myself. They would say, oh, no, thank you. You'll need to find a qualified operator to do that for you. That I did not know. That is really okay. interesting. Head scratcher for sure. It, I mean, I get why it's set up that way because, you know, you, you don't want to allow someone to put your name on a building and then run it like they're running a completely separate brand or entity. But it's just a, an interesting financial uh, triangle there. Yeah, that is crazy. <laughs> I never knew that. Oh, hey, cool. So, so that's a great example. And do you, is that primarily your clients or do you work with restaurants as well too? Do you do anything with packaged goods or any other stuff like that? I tend to stay in hotel world. I've had uh, restaurant clients, I've had winery clients, mm -hmm. and I've had um, hotel vendor clients before. And I've also worked for, on the flip side, owners to help them hold their management companies accountable for the results that they're looking for. So it really just the the difference between me and a hospitality marketing company that you might be able to Google is that I don't tend to work with individual hotel properties to do consumer marketing to like try to fill their guest rooms. I'm working more on the, the much nerdier and bo more boring side. Nice. Okay, cool. So that's question number one, everybody. Let's move to question number two. Fantastic. What, 
what is your big project or initiative that you're working on right now? I think the biggest project that I'm working on um, that I can share is around Top Floor, which is the podcast that I host. Our show has been airing for about seven months. And so we just, I think, released episode maybe 38 or 39. Um, it has been an absolute joy, pleasure. It's the love of my life. If I could only do that, I would die a happy woman. Um, so we're working on improving the website, creating more interesting and exciting content, trying to make and build a community around our listenership. And of course, just, you know, grow the subscribers because I think we have really, really, really amazing and interesting guests from all aspects of hospitality, not just the kind of same old, same old people you see on the podium at a hotel conference. Wow. So did you have any like entertainment experience prior to this? I'm very entertaining. Come on. What are you talking about? <laughs> I know Let me tell you the extent of my entertainment experience. When I was a senior in high school, I starred as the shrew in Taming of the Shrew. Cut to a year or two, maybe two years before we launched Top Floor, I co-hosted another podcast. Um, my my co-host ended up having to end the show because he moved on to another job and another position. Um, but I fell in love with the medium when I did that. So that was that was kind of my little dipping my toes into it. So Listen. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I have a face for podcasting. So you have not seen me on television, but the dulcet tones of my voice, you can hopefully continue to hear for many years to come. Now, you do have a very like professional radio voice. I hear my <laughs> voice, but I speak a lot. I speak, I smoke a ton of cigars. So every time I hear one of my like ads, I'm like, good Lord, dude, like maybe blow your nose before you record that or like get some of the fun out of your lungs. But, uh, and I've always felt like, but I think most people hate their voices. My senior year of high school, I was the bartender in Brigadoon. And um, and that's because it was the only non-singing part. Because I sing <laughs> so poorly that everyone laughed at me, scarred me for life. And, uh, but yeah, so they literally like just gave me that part because I tried out and they wanted, they needed someone who didn't have to sing or dance. So. I'm telling you, I think that's why Shakespeare was a fit, because if anybody tried to have me sing in any possible way, it would be the end of that performance for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm the worst. I'm very toned up. Um, okay, cool. So you got your podcast. And by the way, like podcasting, just if anybody's out there listening, not that there's even more podcasters in the world, obviously we're professionals, but like... Um, <laughs> It is really easy to do and fun, and it like is enjoyable. Like it, it's what keeps me going, because like I write blogs too, but podcasting is way more fun than writing blogs because you get to meet cool people and get to have a conversation, and that's why I do this in general is because everybody in this industry has got an interesting story. You know what I mean? Like everybody does. It's so cool. Totally agree, and the people that. Like, I, I just think it's so interesting that no matter how long I've spent in this business, there are still whole swaths of it, like whole aspects of our industry that I have no idea even exist. So the fact that it, it continues to sort of re-deliver hospitality to me as something new that I can learn about in podcasting is is the best part. You know, I will say, I will agree with that completely which is a good podcasting technique as a host. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Because, you know, like, it's very easy to, when you work in this industry, to get frustrated with certain aspects of it. And I will say, like, as I've been doing the podcast, it's making me fall in love again with the industry because you look at it from a different perspective, right? And especially when you hear operators talking about their passion for taking care of guests, like that really, or a passion for food or like resort operators with a passion for hospitality, you know, 
where they're just like, no, man, I'm here to make sure that your vacation, that one week a year you get to sit on a beach is the best week of your life. Like when you hear stuff like that, it makes you go, that's what drives this business forward. Cause it's very easy to get frustrated when you don't get your queso from the taco place you just ordered it from. And now you have to get it from DoorDash and you have to fight with everybody. Like you just get so angry at everybody. And it's just like, it's good to hear that there are still people out there that actually just truly want to be in the industry and want to take well, care of people, you know? I think another piece of that is when you talk about frustration from like the customer consumer side, I think there are a lot of people working in our business that find it incredibly frustrating. You know, there are, I'm not going to name names, but hotel companies who are still using tech that was built in like 1961. And so these folks who are working in these hotels, like trying to make, I don't know what it's called, MS-DOS yeah. magic tricks or whatever. It can be really frustrating to think like I am in a cave that I will never escape. But when you hear the stories of people who are innovating and creating new things, I don't know about you, but for me, it just yeah. gives me a lot of hope. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were actually just talking about hotels yesterday, me and my business partner, because, you know, one of my theories is, is that like, you're not going to get waiter service anymore in the next couple of years, waiter service for non fancy meal occasions or not very expensive meal occasions are going to go away. You know, the Applebee's, the Chili's, we already see in the margarita robot. I'm working with a guy who does robots to deliver food, you know? So like, have you seen the pancake robot that Hilton came out with? No, does it make pancakes? Yes, it does. It's not really a robot. It's more of like a pancake machine or like 3D printer. But it makes me laugh. I just gave a rant about it on another show. Well, okay. So uh, okay, put a pin in this really quickly. So like, I do think like we're going to like see, I think hotels are ripe for technology innovation. I mean, obviously we're getting keyless phone stuff, you know, but like, you know, why do we have to clean rooms during the day? Why can't we clean them in the middle of the night? Like, why, like, what can we do to innovate, like, some of these things to make hotels more, like, you know, less human-based, less human need for employees, right? Okay, so that was where I was going, but I haven't thought about this now. Does anybody else blown away that they just put a waffle iron, like, that's a 350 degrees in every hotel like breakfast bar and we're just letting people make their own waffles is that like children can do it just like wander on up i don't what i mean it kind of gives you faith in humanity that they had the balls to say you know what burn yourself it's your fault you put a sign that said that was hot there it's a giant cat you can feel it's hot you should probably not touch it and you know what we're just gonna roll the dice man all you know? the best. Good luck. You know what's the best about those waffle makers, though? They make the lobby smell so delicious. Oh, yeah. Like, I would no more eat one of those waffles than a worm sandwich, but they <laughs> smell so good. They do. And I love them. Once again, I'm diabetic, so I shouldn't eat them, but they are delicious. My kids will just crank on. And then, like, you know, there's just a lot going on with that waffle maker, and it's so dangerous. And like anybody who's ever worked like a brunch buffet, which I have, um, you know, like you burn yourself on that thing. And yet it just sits in the lobby. People just cranking waffles out of it all morning. And you don't see everybody like holding their hand while they're eating. Like, oh, don't, you know, don't touch the black part. You only touch the silver part. Lesson learned. Tattoo now. Crap. What did I do? <laughs> uh, that, that's crazy. Yeah. I thought that was nuts. Um, all right, let's go to question number three. What is the one thing in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night? Oh man, I wish there were only one thing. So this is something I've been thinking about and talking about a lot lately. And it goes back to the sort of three different stakeholders that we talked about kind of at the top of the show. Yeah. So just a very brief recap, you have a brand, you have a real estate owner, so the person who owns the real estate and owns the operating business, and then you have an operator. Occasionally, those two of the three of those will be the same person, but usually it's three separate stakeholders, right? So what I think is happening or has already happened 
is that each of these three stakeholders is perhaps in a different business than the line level employees know. So for instance, the brand, like I hate to always call out Marriott Hilton, but they're the biggest. So Marriott Hilton, IHG, Best Western, whomever the brand is, they're not in the hotel business. They're in a franchising business. Like they're selling franchise agreements. So they're marketers, they're branders, they're franchise salespeople, but they're not really in the hotel business in terms of operations. The real estate people are investors. They're making a real estate investment. They're, you know, maybe they'll get some cash flow out of the day-to-day running of the hotel, but the big money, the big return on their investment comes after they dispose of it, after they sell it in five to seven years. And meanwhile, then we have, you know, the third-party management companies. I think they know what business they're in. They're operating But I don't think the employees in the hotel know that, for example, the entire purpose of the existence of the hotel is so that it can be sold in five years. So the reason that I'm saying there's no judgment, even though I probably sound real judgy when I was explaining that, but, (laughs) you know, it's what it is. It's the way that the business is set up. But what keeps me up at night or what, what has my wheels turning and worrying is that because each of these entities is in a different and oftentimes competing business, or at least have competing priorities, there's no one to sort of put the flag in the ground and be the innovator for our industry. So for example, Uh when it comes to who's going to create the next greatest property management system, or who's going to create, not just create, but pay for the creation of the you know channel manager that's going to make it easier and better for guests to be able to book what they want and have a personalized stay you know all of them those are silly examples but i think you know what i mean like who's going to yeah. innovate stuff unless somebody who's not even in that triangle of stakeholders comes and decides to do it none of those people have any skin in the game for innovation No, that's uh, sorry. I uh, I was adjusting my chair, um, and I muted myself because it was loud. Uh, no, you're absolutely right because like the real estate guys, they don't care. They want nothing to do with that building. All they care about is all they care about, like you said, is selling that building in five to seven years and making a profit on the land and getting it paid off as quickly as possible. So they want to reinvest all the profits of the business into paying down the mortgage especially if it's at a good rate or so they can get it down, you know? And then well, the, and even, even owners who have like a lot more at stake in terms of they, you know, just really want to ha- own a fancy hotel because that's their personality. It's yeah. still a short-term play. It's not a long-term, like how do we transform hiring or how do we transform booking? You can't do that in a five to seven year disposition period. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And the management companies, they want they want better systems, but they don't have any money to go do it because they don't make a fortune. Like most of the money, the most of the revenue that they make is going right to salaries of all the employees, right? Uh, the management company and stuff. So they're not making like, like they're not tech people either. And also the brands have a say in that too, because the brands kind of dictate, hey, we got to use our back office system and stuff. So you're right. So like at Marriott, all they're trying to do is book reservations on their property so that they can sell more Marriotts. Like, like selling, like, or, yeah. yeah, I mean, and again, like the, it's no shade to any of these people because that is how the business is set up. And lots of people have made lots of money doing it this way. But yeah. I, it, I am... You know, all through the pandemic, the big thing was like, oh, this is going to force our hands. It's going to force tech innovation and hospitality. It's going to force us to move forward. And I think that that's true. Um, uh, The reason that this innovation question keeps me up at night is I wonder how painful it's going to have to be before somebody plants the flag. Or maybe the case is that there's a fourth stakeholder out in the world that can sweep in and take care of all of this for us and, you know, just innovate the hell out of our our industry which i wouldn't be sad if that were the case 
but the problem is, is like you have to get in with the Marriotts and the Hyatts and the Hiltons, and you have to get them at corporate to bless this stuff because the franchise, the management companies aren't going to adopt anything that's not. Like we find this all the time when we go to sell the big franchisees. The one, the first question they're going to ask is, well, has the franchisor blessed us? Right. So you have to have somebody who can go get in at a Marriott or somewhere big get them to bless it so then you can go out after all the management companies and try to get them to do it you know yeah i think the the um outsider coming in is gonna have to be new brands some sort of disruptors i'm talking yeah. about the vacation rental and sonder and selena and those types of disruptive hybrid models you know there's there's a lot of disruption that's just waiting out in the wings and my goal is that, you know, it doesn't have to be painful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's really interesting. Yeah, I never really thought about it like that because, you know, we, we have some management companies as our clients and, um, you know, but they're just using us for the basic stuff. They're not like, but they're, but they're not really talking about innovation, you know, but then again, they were a San Francisco hotel during the pandemic. So, you know. Well, and it, I mean, honestly, you're the service that you provide or the SaaS product that you provide is an innovation relatively speaking in our business so if they're using you then they are innovating that is an innovation yeah. that's right you heard it here first uh <laughs> i only got paid 50 bucks to say that so take it for what it's worth okay yeah. uh okay question number four what is the one thing you thought your industry would be doing right now that it isn't and you might have already answered that um because you did yeah, you might have already answered that. That's the one I don't, thing. I mean, I don't know. I I think that probably two things. I think we would have better um, gender equity in C suites and upper level management in hotel business by now. I mean, I'm really bad at remembering stats, so I'm not going to be able to quote any for you. But the numbers are still like shocking when you consider that the workforce is majority women and then the leaders are majority men it's a weird it it's an off kilter number so that's probably something surprising to me um and i think that's it <laughs> but it's interesting because i actually uh one of my friend's daughters just graduated with a hospitality degree and we were offering her a position here at the company and as my business partner was interviewing her uh, it came to light that she really just she works at a Marriott part time right now. She just got out of school like in the last couple of weeks, and um, she really wants to be a hotel GM, like a resort GM. And so we ended up not giving her the job because we were just like, well, you, you're not going to get the skills you need here. Like you need to go stick with what you're doing and like, you know, uh, move over there. You know what I mean? But like, I, I kind of want to like, I actually kind of want to interview her on the show because I want to know like, what does she want? Yeah. 20 something hotel restaurant degree like what does she want to see for the industry you know what i yeah, mean yeah that would be a great i would totally listen to that one for sure my friend tammy gillis posted something on linkedin this week that i cannot stop thinking about this is maybe obvious to everyone in the world but me but i just never saw it put this way she said you know one of the reasons why our industry doesn't value um higher education or you know degrees as much as other industries do is that there's a financial imbalance so how can we expect a student to spend eighty thousand dollars on a degree and then ask them to take a fifteen dollar an hour job but mm. if you don't take the fifteen dollar an hour job how do you learn what you need to learn to become a gm like it just is such a conundrum so ask your friend's daughter that's a really good question for her well, I will. And I wrote her an email today and I said, here's some unsolicited advice, right? I said, look, you need to go to your GM and get a 15 minute meeting with this guy or gal, I don't know who it is, and be like, look, dude, I just got a hotel restaurant degree and I want to build my own management training project program here in your business. And I want to be a GM. And so I'm telling you right now, I want to rotate to every department for six months. And I just want to keep you guys when you put me wherever you need me to be. You need me cleaning rooms for a couple months? Fine. I don't care. Because I feel like if she if she could pull that off, A, I think that if her GM didn't jump on that opportunity to get a young person and start mentoring them and moving them through the departments, 
that person's a fool and should be out of the business anyways, because that's what the big hotel training programs used to do. Like I remember when we were graduating, you could go to Weston and you could go work in every department for a couple of years and then you could actually be a GM, but you can build that. Like the, the world is like, the people who get ahead in the world are the people who just do crap. Like she could just stay at the front desk for the rest of her life or she could take 15 minute meeting with somebody, tell them exactly what he, she wants to do. And if that person doesn't help her do that, there's another hotel in town that will help her do that. And they would love it if they could get somebody and then she'll have the, the then you can, you know, cause the whole thing about being a manager in the hospitality industry is like, you know, when I was a manager, I was picking up like napkins off the floor. If you're a manager in a hotel and people don't show up, you're cleaning rooms. And when you can do that with authority and when you can, when you understand and can empathize with the, the different roles that we have in the building, you know what I mean? And how those all work, like you will be a much more effective GM because managing the numbers isn't that hard once you get to it. You know what I mean? hundred percent. So and not only could... is it not hard, but you're not going to have a choice on managing the numbers because people will be riding your self all the time. So exactly. <laughs> but like, but like being able to talk to a buster and understand what that buster's job is, or to be able yeah. to go set up a banquet, Setting up a banquet is hell on earth, you know, waiting a banquet's not horrible, but then breaking it back down sucks too. Yes. Um, well, especially cause you always have like 10 minutes to turn a room. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's the worst. So like, I just think, I hope she takes that advice and I am going to bring her on the podcast. I got to invite her because I do really want to hear like, what is, what are her expectations of this industry? I mean, she just got a hotel restaurant degree during the pandemic. She's working part-time at a Marriott. What does she want from her career? You know, because mm -hmm. we're like, well, I'm old. You're not old. I'm an old man. So like, you know, I want everyone to work 80 hours a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really can't wait. You have to have her. It's a good question to ask. Okay. So, yeah. And then I guess too, just to reiterate your point, you would like to see more white men in the C-suite of big hotel companies. You got, got that it. right. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> It's all, all right. we need, just a couple more white guys and we'll be all set. You know what's great about me is that I'm Puerto Rican, Greek, and Romanian, which my mom, who's got dementia, recently told me we have gypsy blood in us. But I am Ooh. super white. But like everybody that's above me in my family tree, for whatever reason, super dark skinned. Because like, yeah, Greek, Mediterranean, Puerto Rican, you know, they were all dark skinned. But yet I came out super white. But I am very ethnic. Very interesting. Well, to reiterate so that you can't uh, cut that <laughs> down and get me canceled, uh, the I, I'm really interested to see. There are a few people I know who are doing studies right now on um, salaries by different types of sure. classification. So I'm really interested, interested to see what that looks like, too, because I have a feeling that pay equity has a way to go. Oh yeah, absolutely it does. And what's interesting to me with the whole, like having worked in this industry for so many years, like I, you work with everybody, you know, in the restaurant industry or the hospitality industry, you work with everybody. Like, and so it's just so weird that like, it doesn't like people aren't just getting promoted from within. It just all starts to stop at some level, you know? It's weird, all right. But like, I don't think it's like a conspiracy. I don't know. I could be wrong. It's not a conspiracy for me. I'm hiring everybody. I don't care. But, no, you're you know, on a hiring spree, right? Yeah, I totally am. I need salespeople. I'll need developers. I need like an operations manager. I need a bunch of people. I love everyone. Come work with us. I don't micromanage either. Anyways, uh, so those are all good things about me. Um, okay. <laughs> So I guess it's worst story time. Oh, wait, uh, I'm going to ask you a sixth question. Okay. I, if you had to boil it down to one thing, what makes a hospitality company successful? Oh, my goodness. I mm, That's such a hard question to ask. I know. It's really hard. Or and I, I think there are two things. Can I have two? Of course. I think the two things that make any company successful, not just hospitality, are doing what you say you're going to do. Actually, this, these may be the 
maybe two different ways to say the exact same thing, doing what you say you're going to do and being consistent. So if napkins are on the left side of the place setting only every other day and on the other days they're on the right side of the place setting, that is an example of consistency, but also policies, the way that they're, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Empowering. See, see if you is can read my mind. If their policies are um, enforced on a, on a regular and consistent, in a regular and consistent way. I don't know. What do you think? What's, what would your answer to that question be? So the answer that most people have had has been culture. But the culture is such a it's such a blanket term for everything, right? Is it a systems culture? Is it a numbers culture? Is it an employee based culture? Is it a customer satisfaction culture? Right? Like, but so culture has been the main thing. I do think that what I really like, what I think makes people, but I also get pissy about culture because of the fact that like. You know, companies at a high level have these big grant, you know, everybody like marketing statement, their brand statement, what is our mission statement of this business? And then the reality is, is like, you know, United's mission statement is X, Y, Z. But then I was like, my bag was destroyed and I got canceled off my flight. And like your customer service person yelled at me, you know, and it just, it always seems to fall apart at the human level. Right. And so I get very frustrated about these big grand cultural prognostications, whether it has to do with how we treat our employees or how we mm -hmm. treat our customers, because oh, oftentimes that's where that's where a bad manager or a person having a bad day uh, breaks the system and it all comes crawling apart. And then it gives the end user, either the employee or the customer, a reason to just be vindictive or to not try or to not care or to be mad, you know? So I don't know. Yeah, I think, I mean, the thing about culture is that it's very easy to identify when it's working well, but it's yeah. not easy to, to replicate it. it. There you go. Because it's people. You got to have the right people. Is that Jim Collins? You got to get the right people on the bus, put them in the right seat and hire. You have to actually consciously hire people. And so much of the hospitality industry is, do you have a pulse? Come to work here, <laughs> you know? And so like, and we've got to get away from that. But like, I get it. Like these guys don't even have applications right now. No one's even applying to work. Yeah. Yeah. So how I do mean, you fill that gap? You know? I think there's definitely something missing, which is... It's going to sound so dorky to say, but it's like this sort of glamour of the hotel business. You know, I think there's still the like pirate chef cachet in restaurants. Maybe I'm wrong sure. about that, but it feels like it. There's still like a little bit of sexiness to restaurants. But hotels have lost all of the glamour and romance and, you know, the stuff that makes you feel like, oh, gosh, this is such a fancy place where I work and it's so cool here because you're just getting like, I think this is an expression you use a lot and it's true, death by a thousand cuts of like how many reports can we do and how many freaking Excel spreadsheets are needed today. And you're missing yeah. all of the levity and the joy and the craziness and the humor, you know, maybe that will come back now that our, hopefully our pandemic is waning. But I think even before there, you know, the, some of the, I keep using the word glamour and that's not quite right, but just some of the appeal or cachet of hotels have gone, you know, this is still one of the only businesses in the entire universe that you can start as a bus boy and end up as a senior vice president. I just interviewed two people a couple of weeks ago. One was a line cook and one was a bus boy at their first hotel jobs. And they're both like big deal SVPs now. Yeah. And that's the greatest part of the hospitality industry is that you don't have to have like, it's kind of contrary to what I think you, that your friend article was saying, but like, you don't have to have a degree. You just have to be a good people manager. Like you can figure the rest of it out. But if you're a good people manager, you can be successful in our industry and move up because ultimately that's what we're managing. We're managing getting hourly employees to care about things that they don't really care about, uh, really because we're treating them so well 
that they care about it. They don't want to let me down. They don't really care about the guests. They don't want to let me, their manager down because I'm taking good care of them. You know. I mean, maybe that's where <laughs> part of my answer really was culture. And I just didn't say it in that word. The idea that you do what you say you're going to do. That's a culture, yeah. you know? Well, yeah, it is because like, and I always talk about this too, like, you know, it's like tactics are to strategy, right? What our systems are to culture. Because like, if you don't have the, like, if you tell people, hey, you can take care of the customer if they're having a bad experience. But then when they try to do that and you shut it down or there's no way to do it correctly, uh, there's no system in place to do it then it just ends up stopping. And then people go, well, the culture's bull because if you really care like you said you did, then you would have allowed me to contact guy's room or buy him a new shirt because he got paint on it or whatever. Like that was one of the things that we did at The Grove. Like we were empowered as concierges to solve people's problems for real. And so like one time this lady came and like the we have a Bellagio style fountain and at the very beginning it wasn't tuned correctly. It was like a fire hose and she's walking with her baby and the fire hose hits her and we bought her a new outfit. Like we literally were just able to go to the store be like, go pick out an outfit. We're so sorry. We, and we bought it for her right on our own little credit card. You know what I mean? But yeah. like, but when you have that system in place that you can then execute the culture, that's what makes it work, right? So yeah, so that's where I think a lot of the breakdown is. Everybody wants to talk a big game about their culture, but then the bean counters get involved and all of a sudden they're like, you can't comp a room, you know? Well, maybe sometimes you need to comp a room. You know what I mean? I don't know what to say. Exactly. Um, I have this expression that it's better to put out a match with a bucket than a forest fire with a bucket. You know what I mean? Like yeah. just stop the problem when it's small and don't wait until it turns into a big disaster. Well, yeah. And that, yeah, that's a great thing. You should put that on a shirt. Um, actually you said it the completely right way, but you understand what I mean. No, totally. Yeah. Just like kill people with kindness and move on. Like it doesn't have to be because it's when they don't feel like they got heard and they don't feel like they got fairly compensated that they get on the internet and tell 50 people that you suck. And then they get on the web and complain about you and you're just like, Son of a, you know, and then now you're paying a million dollars to get that review down. You know what exactly. I mean? Like it's crazy. And the piece of that, that people I think miss in training or in when they're like trying to explain this to their teams is that it's not, it doesn't matter what you think the level of severity of the situation is. It's the person's emotional response to it. So like yeah. if I stub my toe and because there's a screw loose on the floor in your restaurant and I start crying, it's a very different situation than if I start laughing at myself, like free cup of coffee, if I'm laughing trip to the ambulance or trip in the yeah. ambulance and cry. You know what I mean? Like it's a, you have to measure it based on what that person's perception of their experience is, not what your belief is of how severe it was. Yeah. Like suck it up. It's not something you should ever say to a customer. <laughs> uh, what the wrong with you? you that worst. also should be on a t-shirt. Never yeah. say suck it up. <laughs> um, well, I have one other question though, because you said something that actually I'm very curious about. So you don't believe, you believe that, so like I worked at a hotel when I was in high school and we, we were Bellman and we goofed off and we had the best time ever. It was me and my best friend from high school and we were both Bellman and we were just always screwing around and it wasn't that busy of a hotel, but it was like one of the funnest jobs I've ever had. And like, as like a 17 year old on a good Sunday or Saturday when there were some weddings and stuff, I'd make hundreds of dollars, you know, it was wonderful. But like, you don't feel like the hotel industry is as cool as it once was why like the perception of working at a hotel like you know if you worked at the uh, uh, i keep talking about if you were to the ritz carlton in downtown manhattan you had some swag about you because you I, i'm a bellman at the ritz carlton i'm the doorman at the ritz carlton you don't think that's there anymore as much i mean maybe at the ritz carlton in manhattan but sure. I, I don't know if I can answer all of this. It's something that there are a lot of people who are way smarter than me that are working on trying to fix, right? But I think there's a few different things. I think staffing levels, okay, so it, everything goes back to this triangle of stakeholders that we talked about before. So brands who are issuing franchise agreements take a percentage of... 
top line revenue. Management companies also take a percentage of top line revenue. But owners want and care about profit. Yep. So in order to, I'm, uh, I feel like. No, this is the same problem they have in the restaurant industry. So I, I know exactly what you're saying. I feel like I'm speaking on something that I'm not super qualified to say, but I'm just going to charge right in and we'll hope for the best. <laughs> so my sense is that because there is now, you know, it didn't used to be that the brands didn't run any hotels, right? I mean, that's an asset light strategy that started in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. It hasn't always been that way. And so now that there is this additional layer of top line revenue gone, but the owner still needs to make profit both because she needs cash flow to do distributions to investors and also because the valuation in five years when she sells a hotel is based on how much money it makes, right? I mean, yeah. So now that every hotel is managed by a third party operator, there's just less room to play. And so what I think, I feel like I'm speaking out of turn, but what I think the case is, is that I, you can visibly see that staffing layer uh, levels are smaller. So where it used to be five people on a shift at the front desk, it's three. The um, par levels for things like Terry, linen, I'm talking out of my ass, yeah. soap, whatever it is, are much tighter. Because again, there's less room to play, right? Because everybody has to take their cut of top line. I just feel like there's less wiggle room and a lot more like if we sneeze this pnl is going to explode sure Does that make sense? i get it yes it makes total sense the basically the only way i can recognize my goal as the owning the owner of the hotel which in theory is probably the most important guy because he funded the cash right or the guys whatever and i use guys gender neutrally just the word guys like that like which I, is ridiculous that I even have to say that, but whatever. Uh, I didn't tell you to say it. <laughs> I know, I'm not, but I'm gonna leave it in. I don't edit, so we're just everything's in today. But anyway, you know, like uh, they don't have any. Like they have to cut service to make a profit because they can't sell the hotel for the return on investment that they need to get for their investors who gave them millions of dollars and said you got to give me twenty percent. They can't get twenty percent on that if they if they don't run the business as lean as possible and so instead of what used to be you came in and you had this amazing experience now is a very bare bones experience because they've cut out all of the fluff and it's well the same, and yeah it's it's also true for the folks who are taking a piece of top line right because you know i i say i'm a man i mean I just feel like I'm trashing management companies. I don't mean to. They're, they're way better at running hotels than anybody else in this conversation. Sure. Um, but, you know, I, if I'm a management company and I want my 3% or 5% or whatever it is of top line, but my customer is the owner. My customer yeah. is not the guest who comes to the hotel. My customer is the owner. So I still have to make sure that the owner gets what she wants. Yeah. So. Yeah. If I'm trying to balance those two things, the only way to do it is to cut the expenses in the middle, cut labor costs, cut whatever, whatever, yeah. whatever, make a salmon fillet three ounces instead of four. I, I, that yeah. I mean, that's my gut feeling, but I don't have any data to back up, just observation. Well, no, but I think it's, I mean, I think if you've stayed anywhere in the last couple of years, it's been a really, it's not been what it used to be. I'm not as excited about going to resorts as I once was. And I don't know why. And I don't think it's because I don't like drinking and sitting by a pool. So I think it's something else, you know, but like, but I will say this too. The other problem that you have in the hospitality industry, and you kind of touched on it, and I will tell you from personal experience, because it was Quizness's problem as well, is when you get a franchisor like Marriott, like Hilton, whatever, and they don't operate their own properties and all they care about is top line revenue, then they don't make investments into profitability. They just simply don't do it. They don't make any investments into systems that are going to increase profits because it's not their concern and they don't the care about it. Yeah. yeah. And that's where your innovation comes in, right? So maybe we're going full circle here, 
because that was what Quiznos problem was. We operated a couple of airport restaurants and like one downtown restaurant that was highly subsidized, right? And I mean, airport restaurants don't count because you have a, you have a set group of people that are walking by that terminal that aren't going anywhere and they're gonna, a certain percentage are just gonna buy a sandwich, right? So you have this, this situation where you start to make decisions that are only good about increasing sales but they could have huge ramifications on profitability. And also you don't think things through as well because you don't have any test properties to run them in first. So like, even if like- I'm so giving I'm, myself whiplash, nodding in agreement. I just need yeah. to make that clear for our uh, listener here that I, yes, 100% yeah. yeah. Yep, if you don't run your own business, then you can go, hey, you know what we should do is we should have maids clean six rooms at a time. <laughs> because you don't know that that's ridiculous and stupid and can never work. Right. And then, and when you get into that sort of bean counting, drive sales, drive sales, don't care about operation type scenario, you keep making worse and worse decisions. And then also what it ends up doing is it ends up making your franchisees go, what are we, what are these guys doing over here? They start leaving the brand and it starts to affect your main business revenue, which is trying to sell new franchise agreements and obviously that cut of sales. So I would just suggest to anybody, and I've said this a million times on the show, if you are getting into a franchise agreement with a company, you better darn well do your research and make sure that they own their own properties, that they're testing big initiatives at their own properties, and that they win when you win and only when you win, right? Because the owner doesn't win when sales are high. The owner only wins if profitability is good. If you're BOGO, I can get you to 100% uh, room uh, room percentage by bogoing 50% of your rooms, right? Buy one, get one. Yes, and all of exactly. a sudden you're broke and, uh, but you were at a hundred percent, you know? That's exactly right. A hundred percent could not agree more. Oh, well, this has been a good interview. Let's go to okay. number five. <laughs> Listen, I got to tell you my war story because it's going to take us yes. out of the world of franchising and big brands and into the heart of a mom and pop seafood restaurant where I worked when I was a wee lass in college living in Tallahassee, Florida. So I worked at this restaurant. I'm not going to tell you the name because it sounds like it was a strip club and it was not. <laughs> and there, it was a, a husband and wife that owned it and their son was one of the managers. That will become important later. So it was pretty downscale, like, you know, fried seafood platters and whatever, like crab claws, that kind of thing. But they also mm. had a lobster tank. And when I started working here, I was a pretty experienced server, although not experienced enough to work at an upscale fine dining restaurant, as we will see, soon see. Um, but <laughs> I, could, I could handle a bunch of tables, you know, like I could make it happen. Yeah. Do you remember when you would wait tables? And you stopped ever getting in the weeds, you would just get pissed off. That was this. Yeah, was that's the best feeling though. We you know, just when I, can handle anything. Yeah. Um, so, and I had also been there for a really long time. So I had, re relatively speaking, I had regulars, people who would ask for me to come, you know, take care of their tables, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, Friday and Saturday nights were our busiest nights at this fried seafood palace. And so we were in the middle of a weekend dinner, like a weekend night dinner rush. I think it was a Friday night, as I remember. My section was full. I had a big top. I think it was like eight or 10 people. But then one of my regulars came in with, it was a family of six. They always asked for me. They came about once a month. Because they came, I don't know what they were celebrating, but they came like once a month for a lobster feast for six people. Now, so understand, huge check, huge check. Exactly right. So instead of like fried mullet, they were getting lobsters, six live lobsters. I was so excited when they were coming. Like I'm, you know, putting together lobster setups. They each got a big bowl, a bib, crackers, wet naps like little butter thing, whatever, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Lobster set. Brought the setups out, got the drink orders. Remember we're in the deep South part of Florida. So everybody was getting iced tea or soda. Went back to the kitchen. I'm filling up those big plastic Coca-Cola cups. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Um, with drinks. So I wouldn't have to refill them very often. I'm coming out the double doors from the kitchen to the dining room. And another server, his name was Doug, 
came charging in from the dining room into the kitchen. Uh, we didn't run into each other. He looked furious though. So he was carrying this pitcher of sweet tea. And I have to give you like a side note that again, this is the South. So sweet tea is like 50% simple syrup, yeah. 50% tea, right? Like real sweet. And so anyway, he was, he was like all fired up. He looked really pissed off. I was just like, I'm, you know, I'm busy. I got to go. I'm trying to dodge him. I thought he like was mad at his table or something. Nope. He was not mad at his table. He was mad at me. He was mad at me because I had all of this very lucrative business sitting in sure. my section. So he starts yelling at me, screaming in my face that I had, quote, stole all the good tables. Now, you understand that I didn't seat my own tables. The owner of the restaurant sat the tables, sat our of section. Of course. And if people requested me, like, I'm still pissed. I feel it still. I feel like I have to defend myself this, to this day. And I'm like, people requested me. You son of a bitch. What? What's your problem? Well, what his problem was, was he took the entire pitcher of sweet tea and threw it in my face and all over my shirt, which that's outrageous, right? Like, that's not yeah. cool. Not no. cool. So I kind of push out. I'm like looking for somebody probably to join me in my dramatic reaction. I'm like, what in the what is happening? You know, what's going on? And in this place outside the double doors, the bar was on the right. The host stand was on the left. The host stand and the like cash register where the manager or the owner's son slash manager was reclining, lounging around. <laughs> um, and another server came up behind me who happened to be my roommate and was explaining what had happened. <laughs> And so your next question is probably, well, did the sweet tea bandit get fired? Of course not. Oh, no, 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 no. Not, he did not get fired. He did not, nothing happened to him. The owner's son came out from around, like behind the cash register in front of the dining room, in front of my lobster family and started laughing and pointing at me like, it was my fault. He said something like, get over yourself or whatever, whatever. So what I did was I delivered their drink order, walked to the cubby hole where my keys were, walked out the back door and never returned. <laughs> oh, that's insanity. First of all, I've never heard of a server throwing a picture of anything at another server. I mean, it would be different if I did, like, I mean, we were always doing bullshit to each other. Like, I could have totally been deserved it, you know. He had sure. two martinis waiting on the bar, and I took him instead of him. You know what I mean? Or whatever. Yeah. This was not my fault. I did not do anything wrong. Well, Except I'm, for being an amazing server and extra cute, so everybody wanted to be in my section. <laughs> ah. But like for real, I'm talking 30 plus years of it, of the hospitality industry, and I've never heard of that. Not once. And all the war stories and every restaurant I've worked in, I've never seen anyone do that ever. He had a curly mullet. He was pretty tall. I mean, I'm really short, so maybe he wasn't tall, but he seemed very tall to me. But I cannot remember his last name. In fact, when Facebook first came around, I was like, I'm going to look that <laughs> see i hope he's like working at a diner and living in a trailer in the back of the diner and just having a terrible time but i couldn't find him because i can't remember his last name isn't it okay so i was telling this to my kids the other day because i'm like you don't ever know when this one thing that you do is going to imprint on somebody for the rest of their lives like you'll like be in dementia in like 50 years and you'll be like, dad, dad, you'll be screaming in your like, yes. I mean, this is like 25 years ago. Now, you know, something I thought you were going to say, which I also think is probably true is that you never know what's going on with somebody else. And there's 
a very good chance that that situation had absolutely nothing to do with me. Sure. Like maybe he found out his grandma died or, you know, something horrible happened. But the way that the manager handled it is the part that pisses me off. It's not even that he threw, I mean, it sucked to get sweet tea all over my face or whatever, sure. but how easy would it have been for the manager to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Everybody wow. take a deep breath. Well, yeah, let's get you here. Go behind the thing and get yourself a new shirt. And, you know, go take care of yourself for five minutes. I'll go talk to your table. Which, 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 which I knew as soon as you said the son of the owners was the manager, I already knew that guy said. Like, <laughs> I don't know if it was foreshadowing in your voice or if it was just, you know, I just, you know, there's so few times that the son of the manager is like just awesome. You know, sometimes, sure, but you know. That guy has to love that guy. His parents gave him a job, you know, oh, he didn't want to work sure. there. Interestingly enough, there was another manager on duty who was not related to the family that owned the restaurant. And even though I walked out on my shift, he gave me every single tip that was earned on those tables that night. Wow. Isn't that cool? He was in a really that is nice. Cool. So yeah. this whole story is the horrors of working in the restaurant industry and also kindness in the restaurant industry. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> kindness, empathy for Doug, the tea three throwing bastard. And, um, you know, maybe just don't get too excited about your lobster feast table because it may come crashing down around you. <laughs> thank you. That was a great war story, Susan. And thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Oh, wonderful. And guys, we'll have more uh, interviews soon, so keep listening. Thanks.